Chapter Eleven of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Eleven: A Way Out. Daphne was rather surprised to see the court godmother enter, for she had not honoured her by any special notice since her first arrival. But she was pleased and touched as well by a visit which she knew must have cost the old fairy considerable effort. "'I thought I'd come up and see how you were getting on, my dear,' began the latter, after sinking into the chair Daphne had brought forward for her and recovering her breath. "'I hope you're happy here, and, and well-treated?' "'Quite, thanks, court godmother,' said Daphne. "'But you shouldn't sit moping here by yourself like this.' "'Her Majesty doesn't like me to come down until she sends for me,' explained Daphne. "'And she hasn't today.' "'I haven't been moping, court godmother. I've been listening to the swallows. They're discussing their plans for the winter, and they can't make up their minds where to go, poor darlings.' "'That's only what you fancy they're talking about,' said the fairy sharply, for the gift of understanding bird language is comparatively rare, and only possessed by those who have a strain of fairy blood in their descent. "'You can't possibly know.' "'I didn't till I came here, and then I suddenly found I could.' Princess Ruby declares I make it all up, but I don't. I can even understand what some of the animals have to say, and it's rather fun sometimes. The other morning in the gardens I heard a tortoise telling a squirrel. "'I dare say, I dare say,' interrupted the court godmother, who had not come there to hear the small talk of any tortoise. "'I find our conversation wearisome myself, and so will you when you've been here a little longer. And so you're comfortable here, are you?' she went on, looking round the chamber, which had walls of mother-of-pearl with hangings of delicate shimmering blue-green at the window, and round the small ivory four-post bed. "'Well, this room looks very cool and pleasant, and you've pretty dresses to wear, it seems. I like that one you have on, most becoming, though it wants an ornament of some kind to set it off. But perhaps you don't care for jewellery?' "'I do,' said Daphne, "'very much. But I haven't any now, you see.' "'But you had once, hadn't you? I seem to recollect the Queen telling me she bought something, a pendant, I fancy, she said, from you before you came to Mechelenland. Or was it somebody else?' "'No, it was me,' said Daphne. It was very decent of her, because I was rather in a hole just then, with a debt I couldn't possibly have paid otherwise, and the pendant was no use to me, you see, not a thing I could ever have worn.' "'So you wasted your money in buying an ornament which was unsuited to you, eh?' "'I didn't buy it, court godmother,' said Daphne, and proceeded to explain, much as she had done at Inglegarth, how it came into her possession. The fairy questioned her about her father, but she had little information to give. Even his name was uncertain, as it seemed he had only moved into his last rooms shortly before his death. All his landlady could say was that it was something foreign, which she could not pronounce— but she had gathered from certain things he had let fall that he had led a wandering life as a musician, and had at one period been a riding-master. She believed that, in the latter capacity, he had met his young wife, Daphne's mother, and that it had been a runaway marriage. She died soon after giving birth to Daphne, and left him so broken-hearted that he did not care to make any fight against illness when it came to him, but rather welcomed a death that meant reunion. "'But all I really know,' concluded Daphne, is that that pendant belonged to him, and that my adopted mother took care of it for me till I was grown up. 
and I think he would not have minded my selling it when I wanted the money so badly. Well, whether he would have minded or not, said the fairy, you did sell it, and a sorry bargain you made of it too. I'll be bound now that you've told the whole court about it long ago. I've told no one, court godmother, said Daphne. Why should I tell them about my own private affairs? I shouldn't have said anything to you if you hadn't heard of it already from Her Majesty. You're wise to hold your tongue, remarked the fairy, greatly relieved. For I may tell you that if the court once heard that the queen bought that jewel from you, it would prejudice them very seriously against her, and I am sure you would not wish that. Of course I shouldn't wish it, said Daphne, a little haughtily. Though how I could prejudice Her Majesty by telling anybody of an instance of her kindness to me, I really don't know. She scarcely won the pendant herself, and now she's given it to Prince Clarence. But nobody knows that it was once mine, and you can be quite sure that nobody ever will from me. In a court like this, my child, said the fairy, almost apologetically, one cannot be too careful, but I can see you are to be trusted and, after some conversation on less dangerous subjects, she retired. Her worst fears had been confirmed. She could no longer doubt that Daphne was Prince Chrysopras's daughter. She wondered now how she could ever have doubted it. But this constituted her Daphne's official godmother. As such, was it not her duty to see that she had her rights? If she did her duty to her godchild, it might entail very unpleasant consequences to herself consequences from which she felt herself shrinking as much as ever. Might they not be avoided? Daphne evidently had no suspicion of her claims, and, as the fairy reminded herself, what the eye does not miss the heart will not grieve for. The child was quite happy and contented as she was. If the marshal still had any ambition to resume his power, he would have no scruples about removing any rival. "'I should only be exposing her to danger.' thought the court godmother. And there were the poor king and queen to be considered, and the baron and the astrologer royal, who would all go down in the general debacle if the truth were allowed to come out. She was bound to think of them. So far as she could see, the only result of disclosure would be to establish the marshal as monarch, and they had had quite enough of him as regent. So, as it is seldom difficult to discover insuperable objections to any course that one has strong personal reasons for avoiding, the fairy easily persuaded herself that she owed it to others to remain silent. The secret was safe enough. Both Queen Selina and Daphne could be depended on not to betray it now. It was better for everybody concerned, particularly the court godmother, that it should remain unknown for ever. Still, her conscience smote her a little with regard to Daphne. She was so well fitted to be a queen. It seemed hard that she should forfeit the crown that was rightfully hers. But that's entirely her own fault, the fairy told herself. Xuriel read the stars quite correctly. He foretold not only the very spot where she would be discovered, but the sign by which she was to be recognized. If she chose to part with the jewel to another, she must take the consequences. I'm not responsible." And yet, after all, Daphne was her goddaughter, if she could not be openly acknowledged as such. Something must be done to make up to the poor child for all she had lost. And here the fairy had a positively brilliant idea. Why not marry her to Merlifloor? But almost immediately she remembered with dismay that she had been making a very different matrimonial arrangement for him. 
That, however, was before she knew what she knew now. The case was entirely altered. She could not possibly allow him to commit himself to an alliance with a daughter of these usurpers. That must be prevented at all hazards, and fortunately he had taken no irretrievable step as yet. Unless I am much mistaken, she thought, he will forget all about Princess Edna if he once sees Lady Daphne. She ought to be lovely enough to satisfy even his ideal. But if he doesn't see her soon, it may be too late to save him. Like most fairy godmothers, she possessed the power of impressing any protégé of hers, who was not more than a couple of hundred leagues away, with a perfectly distinct vision of anybody or anything she chose. She had made not a few matches by this means in her best days, and some of them had not turned out at all badly. But it was a long time since she had last exercised any of her occult faculties. To do so demanded a concentration of will-power and psychic force which told on her more and more severely as she advanced in years, and she had resolved to abstain from any practices that might shorten the life to which she had every intention of clinging as long as possible. "'But I must risk it just for this once,' she decided. "'Yes, I'll make him dream of her this very night.' Meanwhile, Queen Selina had informed her daughter of the brilliant future that awaited her, and was not a little annoyed at Edna's failure to express the least enthusiasm. "'I wish Godmother wouldn't meddle like this in my affairs,' she said. "'I suppose I shall have to see this Prince Mirliflor now if he comes, but it's not at all likely that he will have any of the qualities that appeal to me.' "'My love,' remonstrated Queen Selina, "'he will be the King of Clair de Lune some day.' "'He may be, Mother.' returned Edna, but that is a consideration which I shall not allow to affect me in the slightest. "'Of course not, my dear,' said her mother, feeling that Edna could be safely trusted to look after her own interests. "'You are free to decide exactly as you please. I shall put no pressure on you whatever.' "'My dear mother,' returned Edna, "'you would gain nothing by it if you did.' That night the court godmother retired early, and spent a long and strenuous vigil in calling up a vivid recollection of Daphne as she had seen her that afternoon, and imprinting the vision on her godson's sleeping brain. She was unwell in consequence all the next day, but she was easier in her mind, after having prevented any untoward effects her counsels might have had upon Mirliflor. It was rather a strain upon her to face the royal family again, but she forced herself, for her own sake, to treat them with as much outward respect as before. She had begun to think that the worst was over when an envoy suddenly arrived in hot haste from Clairdelune, bearing a formal proposal from Prince Mirliflor for Princess Edna's hand, and the information that he was following shortly to plead his suit in person. He had also entrusted the messenger with a short dispatch to his godmother, which he read with impotent fury. It was a somewhat involved and incoherent letter, expressing his thanks for the vision for which he could not doubt he was indebted to her, but intimating that she had convinced him so forcibly that Princess Edna possessed qualities infinitely more precious than the most exquisite beauty, that his determination to win her had already been irrevocably fixed. "'Prefers her to Lady Daphne, does he?' she said to herself, as she realised that she would be forced to speak out now if he was to be saved from such an alliance. "'Then he must marry her, that's all.' I can't and won't turn all Mechelland topsy-turvy on his account. I've done all I could for him, and I shall leave him to go his own way. I'll go up to bed before he arrives, and I expect it will be a long time before I'm able to come down, for I feel sure I'm going to be ill. And little wonder. 
Queen Selina was so elated by the Prince's message that she ordered it to be publicly announced at once. The court, whom she informed herself, expressed the greatest delight, and, as for the old court chamberlain von Eisenbenden, he was almost lyrical in his jubilation. "'This is indeed a glorious day, madam,' he cried. "'It has long been my dream to see the reigning houses of Märchenland and Claire de Lune united, but of late I had begun to despair that it would ever be accomplished. And from all I have heard of Prince Mirliflor, Her Royal Highness is almost as much to be felicitated as he.' "'Thank you, Baron,' replied the Queen. "'We are all most pleased about it, though I shall be very lonely without her.' "'You see,' she added, raising her voice for the benefit of such of her ladies-in-waiting as happened to be within hearing, "'there is no one else here who is any companion for me. I can't make intimate friends of any of my ladies, as I could of the dear old Duchess of Gleneagles, for instance, or even the Marchioness of Muscombe. Ah, my dear Baron, our English aristocracy! You have nothing to approach them in a country like this. Nothing!' "'I can well understand.' he said, that your majesty must feel the loss of such society. "'I miss it, Baron,' Queen Selina confessed, without untruthfulness, seeing that she always had missed it. "'It is only natural that I should. The Duchess is such a sweet woman, a true grand dame, and the Marchioness, though only appears by marriage, such a clever, talented creature. They would both have so rejoiced to hear of our dear Edna's engagement.' She was such a favourite of theirs, you know. I remember the Duchess always prophesied that she would make a brilliant marriage. These particulars were thrown in mainly for the edification of the court, but Queen Selina had almost brought herself to believe them, and, in any case, none of her own family was at hand just then, so she was safe from contradiction. The announcement of Prince Mirliflor's proposal had no sooner reached Count Rubenfrasser's ears than he drove over to the palace to ascend from Edna herself whether the report had any truth in it. He succeeded in obtaining a private interview, and at once put his question. "'It's only true so far as that the Prince has proposed to me by letter,' Edna informed him. "'Whether I shall accept him when he appears will depend entirely upon circumstances.' "'You won't accept him, Princess,' said the Count, drawing himself up to his full height, which was now well over seven feet. "'Or, if you do, he will never wet you.' "'I shall see to that.' "'Really, Count,' protested Princess Edna, feeling secretly rather pleased, "'I don't quite see what it has to do with you.' "'Don't you?' he replied. "'I might want to marry you myself. I've been thinking of it lately.' "'Have you?' said Edna, not so pleased. "'That is very good of you. But has it never occurred to you that I might have a voice in the matter?' "'You would have to belong to me if I wanted you badly enough.' he said calmly. "'And you're not sure yet if you do want me badly enough, but in the meantime you would prevent anyone else from marrying me if you could. Is that it?' "'That's exactly it,' he said, gratified at being so thoroughly understood. "'Well, can't you see how selfish that is of you?' "'It's splendid being selfish,' he said, "'and not really so difficult after all when you try.' "'And how do you suppose you could prevent me from marrying Prince Mirliflor if I thought proper to accept him?' "'Oh, that would be easy. I should only have to unchain Tootsie and send him to kill the prince for me. Tootsie is so intelligent and obedient that he'll do everything I tell him.' 
I think you forget, Count, that it's against the law to let that dragon loose. I know, he said, but I have no respect for human laws any more. I'm not going to obey anything in future except my own instincts. I'm sure you don't mean that. And if you really sent that dragon to kill anybody, especially anyone who had done nothing to offend you, it would be very wicked indeed. Other people might think so, he said. I shouldn't myself, and that's all that really matters. I'm going to make my own morality for the future. I want to be a superman, like that learned man you told me about, with the odd name. Aren't you glad I'm taking your advice? Of course, I'm pleased, said Edna, that you should be more independent and unconventional and assert yourself. Which is all that Nietzsche really meant. You mustn't carry it too far, you know. But you said I couldn't be really great unless I felt the will and the power to inflict great suffering, he said. And that's just what I do feel. Yes, but you can feel the will and the power without actually inflicting suffering, said Edna instructively. Nietzsche never intended that, and if you set that horrid dragon of yours at the prince, you would inflict very great suffering indeed. I shouldn't mind that, he said. Perhaps not, but father and mother would, and you would be in prison again and lose your dragon as well. But I don't suppose for a moment you are serious. It would be too absurd of you to threaten violence to a prince before I've ever seen him or made up my mind to accept him, which most likely I shall not do. That is true, he said rather as if you were glad of an excuse for not taking any immediate action. Yes, I will wait till I hear whether he is betrothed to you or not. But if I find he is, I shall have to clear him out of my path somehow or other. He left Edna with the consciousness that she had been more than usually interested. The Count was certainly developing. She liked his new air of self-confident domination. It would be rather thrilling, she thought, to be wooed in this masterful way but he had taken some pains to let her see that he was not sure yet whether she was worth the trouble of wooing. That was insulting, of course, but he might alter his opinion in time, and then she would know how to avenge herself. She wondered if Prince Mirliflor would be ardent and domineering enough to carry her by storm, and caught herself hoping he might be. But when, shortly afterwards, she heard that he was just entering the courtyard of the palace with his suite, she was seized by a sudden panic. "'You go down and speak to him, mother,' she implored the Queen. "'I—I I can't see him just yet. And make him understand that I must get to know him better before I can give him a definite answer.' Queen Selina bustled down to the state reception hall, where she arrived in a highly flurried condition, just after the Prince and his brilliant retinue had been ushered in. "'My dear Prince,' she began, "'this is really too kind. So delighted by your proposal. We all are, dear Edna especially.' We feel it such a compliment. My husband, his majesty, I mean, will be in directly, but Edna has asked me to make her apologies for not coming down for a few minutes. The poor child, naturally, is feeling a little shy and overcome. Madam, said the prince, whose comely face and gallant bearing had already won him the sympathies of those of the court who were present, and particularly the court chamberlains, I count each minute a month until I have the happiness of looking upon the enchanting face that has haunted me constantly from the moment I beheld it in a vision. "'In a vision?' cried the Queen. "'How very odd! But how did you know, Prince, it was our Etna?' "'I will attempt to describe my vision, madam,' he replied, "'and, 
though my poor words cannot hope to do it justice they will at least convince you that it was indeed the princess whom i was permitted to see he described her as well as he could though with a growing bewilderment that the lady of his dream should have a mother who so little resembled her queen selina listened to this rhapsody with misgivings with every allowance for the fervour of a lover who was also a fairy prince even maternal partiality could not blind her to the fact that his description would be far less incorrect as applied to the heritage girl than to the princess edna it certainly suggests dear edna prince she remarked with a mental note that daphne must be kept out of his way except perhaps in one or two respects but then you can't expect to see people in dreams looking exactly like themselves can you i'll run up and bring her down to you and if a mother may say so i don't think you'll be very disappointed but it was to daphne's chamber that she went first oh miss heritage she began quite pleasantly i'm going to ask you to do something for me i don't at all like the effect of those jewels they've sewn on to the front of my satin brocade i'm sure they would look much better on my cloth of gold skirt would you mind getting both skirts from my wardrobe and just making the necessary alterations for me you had better set to work at once as i may be requiring the cloth of gold very shortly and as time is pressing i will tell them to bring all your meals up here till the work is done it's so important that i can't trust any of the regular ladies in waiting with it that disposes of her for at least a week she reflected as she went on to princess edna's apartments and everything ought to be settled long before that when a little later she smilingly re-entered the reception hall with one arm affectionately placed round her reluctant daughter's waist it cannot be denied that the prince was very much disappointed indeed the vision had not prepared him for edna's pince-nez among other matters and altogether he felt that his godmother had exaggerated the princess's personal attractions to a most unscrupulous degree but this he had sufficient self-command to conceal in fact he rather overdid it though it was only to himself that his courtly greeting sounded fulsome and insincere but if edna detected no extravagance in his homage she was none the more pleased with it it made her feel awkward and self-conscious she set him down in her own mind as too finicking while his good looks did not happen to be of a type that appealed to her still they got through the first interview fairly well though both were relieved when a message came from the court godmother that she was feeling too indisposed to leave her apartments but would be glad to see him as soon as he was at liberty he had himself conducted to her at once and was not a little aggrieved as well as surprised by the asperity of his reception well she said peevishly so you've seen your princess have you and now i suppose it is all settled between you not yet he said stiffly i believe she is reserving her answer till we are better acquainted but you don't expect it will be unfavourable do you do you godmother i can't think you would have urged me to present myself here to be publicly humiliated oh there's no doubt she will accept you she said with a sharp twinge you need have no apprehensions on that score and as you no longer consider beauty indispensable i dare say she'll be as satisfactory a helpmate as she would wish i dare say he agreed dully and then his pent-up grievance suddenly broke out in spite of him with all respect to you godmother voldoiseau he said i don't consider you've treated me fairly over this you persuaded me that it was my duty to marry at once and that there were better and more permanent qualities than beauty i'm not complaining of that 
I am quite ready to believe that the Princess Edna is as learned and admirable a lady as you gave me to understand, while she is not without good looks of a kind. But why send me a vision representing her as a miracle of loveliness? That is a deception which I can't understand, and I confess I find hard to forgive. How could she have foreseen that he would be foolish enough to imagine that the vision represented Edna? But the worst of it was that the fairy could not explain her real intention just then without lending herself in fresh difficulties. So she sought refuge in prevarication. "'I sent you a vision,' she said. "'I don't know what you're talking about, Merleflor. A vision, indeed.' "'Didn't it come from you?' he asked lamely. "'I—' "'I made sure it must have.' "'You had no business to make sure of anything of the kind. And if you choose to dream that your future bride is more beautiful than she happens to be, I don't see why you should put the blame on me. But the truth is, you're longing for some excuse for getting out of this marriage. Come, Merleflor, you know you are, and you'd better say so frankly.' "'It is not so, Godmother,' he replied. "'I'm quite prepared to obey your wishes. After all, since I must marry, I'm not likely to find a more advantageous match than this. Besides, I couldn't possibly back out of it now, even if I desired.' "'And what?' asked the fairy. "'If you actually meet the princess of your dreams?' She was ignorant of the Queen's manoeuvre, and so thought he could not well fail to come across Daphne that very evening. "'That is so likely,' he said bitterly. "'A mere creation of my own mind, an ideal that I ought to have known would never be realized. No, Godmother, since there is no hope of that, it matters little to me whom I marry. "'Listen to me, Merleflor,' said the fairy impatiently. "'I—I am not so bent on this alliance as I was. Never mind why, but I am not. And—and if you would rather withdraw, it's not too late. I see nothing to prevent you.' "'Nothing to prevent me?' replied Merleflor indignantly. "'There is my honour. What prince with any sense of honour at all could propose to a princess, and then inform her that he finds after a personal interview that he has changed his intentions? You of all people, Godmother Voldoiseau, should know that we cannot do these things. Those ideals again, said the exasperated fairy. You'll drive me out of all patience directly. But there, I've said all I could, and if you will be pig-headed, you must. And now I'll ask you to go away as I am really not well enough to bear any more conversation. He had not been gone more than ten minutes when there was another knock at her door, and this time it was Princess Edna herself who entered. "'So it's you, is it?' snapped the court godmother, with none of her customary urbanity, and then, recollecting the necessity of keeping up appearances, threw in a belated, "'My dear?' "'Well, I hear you are taking time before you put Merleflor out of suspense.' but I presume you have already decided to accept him.' "'That's what I came to consult you about, court godmother,' replied Edna. "'I don't feel that I—he is at all a person I could ever be happy with. He is not on the same intellectual plane with me. We should have nothing whatever in common. He seems to have none of the qualities that would make me respect and look up to a man.' Relieved though she was, the fairy still resented any disparagement of her favourite godson from such a quarter. "'Hoity-toity!' she exclaimed, an expression which, if it ever was popular, is no longer used by anyone but fairy godmothers, and even the fairy only indulged in it under extreme provocation. 
let me tell you that Mirliflor is not generally regarded as ineligible. But no doubt, my dear, she added acidly, you have every right to be fastidious. She was greatly tempted to let her know that Mirliflor would be anything but broken-hearted by her refusal, but prudence warned her that she had better not. And may I ask what you propose to say to him? Oh, said Edna, I suppose I shall have to tell him to-night that I find I don't like him enough to marry him. And give everybody to understand that he is personally displeasing to you. Indeed you will not, said the old fairy, imperiously. Other persons' feelings have to be considered as well as your own. Mine, for one. Mirliflor would never forgive me for exposing him to such humiliation. Nor would his father, King Tournesol, for that matter, and I can't afford to quarrel with either of them. You can't get rid of an unwelcome suitor like that. At all events, not in Märchenland. Can't I? said Edna. Then how am I to get rid of him? A princess of high breeding, replied the fairy, finds some means of tempering her refusal so as to avoid wounding her suitor's pride, and I may tell you Mirliflor has more than his share of that. The usual method here is to accept him on condition that he succeeds in answering some question so difficult that it is no disgrace if he fails to answer it. Do you mean something in the nature of a riddle? asked Edna. Well, a riddle will do. Yes, there are precedents for that. A riddle will be quite in accordance with court etiquette. Ask him a riddle, if you like. I'm afraid I'm not very familiar with riddles, said Edna. I've never found them particularly amusing myself, but I must try and remember one. It needn't be so very difficult, because he doesn't seem to me clever enough to guess any riddle. Quite clever enough not to try, was on the tip of the fairy's tongue, though she did not say it. I've no doubt, my dear, she replied, that any riddle you may ask Mirliflor will be quite beyond his power to answer. Thank you very much for your advice, court godmother, said Edna. I dare say I shall be able to remember a riddle of some sort by this evening. The fairy felt that she had extricated herself from her dilemma with considerable tact and ingenuity. Not only had she delivered her godson from the slight of being summarily rejected by this upstart girl, but she had saved herself from all necessity to make any compromising disclosures. Yes, she told herself complacently, I've really got myself and Mirliflor out of it very neatly indeed. I mayn't be quite as quick-witted as I was in my prime, but I'm not in my dotage just yet. End of chapter 11